Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piedi. So, David, in the wake of last week's show, it was not a wake. It was an exciting show, a lot of fun. But somebody wrote and said what detracted from listening to it, not the noise in the bar room, which I realized people with crappy speakers, it didn't come out too well. Yeah. And we did our best. We did our best to cut it back without distorting the sound itself. Someone said we giggle too much or you giggle too much or Jeremy giggle too much. What is your response to that? Uh, Laughter is good for the soul. Laughter is a good thing. Actually, I would submit that the quality of life, if you want a real gauge of the quality of a life, look at the ratio of the amount of time laughing versus not laughing. I think that when you get to the end of your life, you take stock and if you laughed a lot, you had a good life. So I'm just having a good life. That's all. Okay. Okay. How about some laughter, David? Go ahead. Well, I'm not going to laugh on demand. What do you think? I'm a monkey? I'm not going to laugh on demand. I mean, if something is funny, I will laugh. I don't know how to laugh on demand. In fact, I, 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 you know what? We're talking to Richard Dolan this week, one of our favorite guests. Why why are you doing this? I just wanted to bring it up because this is the show that is being heard after last week's show because it's the next week's show. Yeah, but we're not going to use cuss words, and we're going to be very good. And if we laugh, it will be completely appropriate. And in fact, it will be laughter, not giggles. There is a difference. Indeed. Giggling is just a precursor to laughter. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. This has nothing to do with anything. It has now been officially recorded that George Bush is the most unpopular president on record. And this has what to do with the paranormal? Well, we (laughs) have... At last, okay? I'm laughing. Hey, you see, I made you do it. Actually... We go to Richard Dolan, and he has this book, UFOs in the National Security State. This year he's working on the sequel to that book, bringing us up to date. And, of course, we're talking about the government's involvement in UFO research. And, in theory, George Bush was part of the government. Yeah, that's definitely in theory. (laughs) But, uh, you know, if you want to talk about things that have been kept sort of underwater in the government, no waterboarding reference there. Let's talk to Bush Sr., who, as former head of the CIA, probably knows where some of the skeletons are buried. Speaking of skeletons, Richard Dolan, first of all, welcome back to the PowerCast. And the question I'll ask you, do you think in your research that George Bush Sr. knows any of the secrets that we need to know about in terms of UFOs? Yes, hi, Gene. Hi, David, by the way. Uh, regarding George Bush Sr., my, my hunch is that he does know about the UFO secret and probably knows a great deal. You know, I've all all that I can base it on are a few people that I've spoken to who who actually know George Bush Sr. and know uh, other high-level individuals from uh, CIA and, and similar kinds of agencies. So, uh, the word that I've gotten from at least one source that I consider to be very knowledgeable is that Bush knows a great deal. I don't know if that means he knows everything there is to know, but that he knows a lot, and also that uh, people around him. Uh, at the presidential cabinet level, I've, I've known something. And the reason I can say this is that the uh, understanding that I received from one particular individual is that every every so often at the uh, near presidential level or, or close to that level, there seems to be a review of the ET problem. And uh, that the, this is actually going into my next book uh, to the extent that I can write about it. But that there's a review of this problem, and essentially the problem is how do we how do we reveal this information to the world? because it's not an easy thing to do. So my understanding is that circa 1990, uh, shortly before the Gulf War emerged, that there were 
that this was making the rounds in the Bush administration and, in fact, was going to be presented at a, one time when Bush would be at Kennebunkport. And that it wasn't presented to Bush because it was essentially nixed by uh, the Department of Defense, which was the big no in there. And that, uh, from my understanding, there were one or two agencies that did support disclosure and others that absolutely did not, and mainly that defense did not. Hmm. So, right, I mean, hmm is probably a good way to look at it because I don't know if this is completely true or not. Uh, but I can say that the individual who told it to me is is a very well-known individual to... Uh, not just the UFO research world, but to the world in general. And, you know, I think it could be true. So, But uh, on top of that, I just think that when you look at Bush's background with the intelligence community, you just look at the man and his, his background with covert operations in general. I mean, look, when he was vice right. president, uh, Bush was very deeply involved in a lot of covert actions that, that basically bypassed President Reagan. But it, it looks very much like George Bush was involved in a lot of those. So Bush is a guy who has had his hands in the covert world for many, many years. So I think he would be a very good candidate for knowing about the ET problem. So it follows then, has he told his son anything? Exactly. My guess is that he would have told him something. It's very easy for us to make fun of George W. Bush. Uh, it's very easy for us to really despise George W. Bush for a lot of reasons. And it's obvious that, you know, the current president is not a man of supreme intellect, and he has not inspired a great deal of confidence uh, in the national security community. All of that is true. But he's also the son of President George Bush, and, um, and he's also someone who is the president of the United States. And, you know, how much each president knows, knows is, is questionable. Like the individual that I was speaking to um, on this problem, one thing I asked him was, how much do how much do U.S. presidents know about the uh, extraterrestrial phenomenon? And his answer was, well, it, I, he said he thinks it varies. Uh, it was this individual's opinion that Presidents Carter, Reagan, and Bush all knew a fair amount, that Presidents Clinton and current President Bush seemed to know less. And, and the um, statement he made was, he said, look, you know, there are lifers who are involved in this problem. Then you have the president who's here for four or eight years, not all of equal ability, not all of equal reliability. Uh, some, he said, are not all mentally balanced. Some could be, uh, you know, drinking men and, and all of these different things which make them more or less reliable. And so uh, the impression that I was given was that it's not all equal. They're not all equally briefed, well, depending on the confidence level that they may inspire in the, in the secret holders. Plus, I would think you'd also have to factor into that, Rich, the whole issue of what are they dealing with at the time of their presidencies and what is their own personal sure, interest sure. in the topic, right? I mean, if they're not motivated yeah, to find out, well, then they have bigger fish to fry. Right. You know, I think for, for a lot of people, it's hard to remember sometimes that those of us who talk about this topic on a regular basis are very much in the minority that for the majority of people, this is really not a critical issue in their lives. And, and, and in, in some ways, that's, I think it's really surprising. But in some ways, it's not, especially given what's going on right now um, with our economy, with the state of right. the country in general, with uh, you know, our, our nightmare with the dollar, um, our, our occupation of Iraq. All of these things, I don't think there's any question that they rate higher on an awareness chart than anything to do with UFOs or even anything to do with the paranormal. 
you know, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of people see this topic, sadly, as entertainment, not as anything serious. Right. I, think, I uh, think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly how people perceive it. Of course, I don't think that's how we perceive it. Right. I look at, at the UFO topic as very integrated with with the broader array of topics that, that we see. And in fact, it, it's, it could very well be, in a lot of ways, a driver of some of these themes in a behind-the-scenes way that has really not been fully explored. Quite frankly, I mean, I've spoken with um, individuals who are high-level right now military who are telling me that in the current war and in Iraq that there are UFO incidents that are disturbing. Uh, this is not something that they are at liberty to talk about. I mean, I get this stuff on a confidential basis. Well, if it's that important, though, I would think that wouldn't the president be required as part of his responsibility to know that there's a threat that we do not understand? Probably, yes. But, of course, we also have a long history of presidential deniability. And so, you know, first of all, on, on the one hand, it's not possible. It is not physically possible, I should think, for any president to be able to handle every single problem that's, that comes up. That, that's why you have teams of advisors and people who help you and you delegate responsibilities. I mean, Reagan, of course, was notorious or famous, depending on, you, on how you look at it, for delegating responsibilities and for not knowing key things that were going on and for being able not to know about a lot of things because you had to have deniability. And it could very well be the case with the UFO issue that, you know, like I know for sure that a president like Lyndon Baines Johnson was did not care. As far as anyone can tell, LBJ did not care about the UFO topic. He, he, he was given to understand that, it, that there was something there, but his attitude was, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to deal with it. Mm. Other presidents have had a greater interest. Reagan had a very great personal interest in UFOs, as did Jimmy Carter, as did Bill Clinton. So it, it does vary. And uh, But, you know, you're on the point about it. There's other items on the agenda here right now that, that can easily supplant the UFO topic, absolutely. The thing, though, is that I, I have been arguing for many years now that the UFO issue is of much greater gravity in our um, our national security history than I think most people recognize. It's not a fun and games, you know, frivolous type of topic. It's it is a serious topic. You know what? I wanted to really get into that and David's going to have a ton of questions. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that 
that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking with none other than Richard Dolan, our friend Richard Dolan, who is the author of UFOs in the National Security State, and he's working on a sequel. And before we pursue the implications, what about the sequel? How's it coming? Very well. I, I can actually say this and not be lying. The first book is called UFOs in the National Security State. It's volume one, and it goes from the 19, 1941 up to 1973. For many, many years, I plan to do two volumes and only two volumes so that the second volume would just cover all the subsequent years but um, a few months ago I, I just finally made the decision final and total that it, this is going to be a three volume out of two volume work it has to be because the amount of data that I have right now for the second volume if I, if I were to do the entire period from 1973 to the present it would be a, a thousand plus page book and if it's going to be that long, I might as well just cut it. So I'm going to have uh, volume two will go up to 1991, and that is nearly done. I'm in the late 1980s now in terms of the narrative, and I'm very happy with how it how it reads. Uh, to be honest with you, Gene, I think it's I think it's a superior book to the first one in terms of uh, the depth of information that I get into. Uh, the writing I think is is on par with the first book, and. Uh, the research is, uh, I think, better, or at least equal to what I did in the first book, probably a little bit better. So, I mean, overall, I think it tells the kind of story that I wanted to tell, and it's really bringing the UFO history up, getting toward the modern era, finally. Let me have David pick up some questions. He has a lot of things he wants to explore. I don't want to hog the mic, and I kind of hogged it the first 15, 20 minutes, but that's okay. That's all right. I'll, I'll do some hogging now. Well, I love talking um, to both you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. We actually really enjoy talking with you as well. Here's a question for you. Given that you have spent a considerable amount of time looking at the history of this topic in depth, what trends have you noticed over the years? Let me be specific about this. One of the really fascinating things to my mind is the study of the morphology of UFOs. Uh, we have something, some aspects of this have been fairly consistent, things like disc-shaped craft, but there have been other very odd trends. Uh, we go back to, let's say, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, there are a good number of reports of large cigar craft. I saw one of them, so um, I can relate to that. But then, in the uh, starting from like the 90s forward, there have been, in terms of the large-scale craft, the predominance of triangular right. vehicles. Meanwhile, what we've also seen, I think, change, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, whereas early on in the game, uh, we primarily heard about discs. Yeah. Starting from, let's say, the mid-80s forward, there all of a sudden began to appear these small lights 
that in some cases would morph into other things and it's, in other cases would simply remain small lights. What does this suggest, if anything, to you about potential sourcing of these things? Wow, what a great question. The only uh, amendment I might make to what you said, David, is that mm-hmm. uh, my tracking of the triangle phenomenon, there, there are actually pretty decent triangle reports that go back before 1990, even into the 1960s, there's, there's actually quite a few, but there are none that I would say are really reliable on a large scale until 1975. But you can definitely definitively mark the beginning of the Triangle era, at least in terms of waves of activity. And right. In April 1975, um, in the North Carolina area, there are quite a few. And then, of course, in the New York Hudson Valley, you have Triangle and Boomerang-shaped objects that were seen. Yes. Um, and taking it on through. But, and then, of course, in Belgium uh, and in much of Europe in 1989, there were Triangles. Yeah, the... The shapes of these objects have, you know, there's there's always been a few certain shapes. This shape has been seen to this day. That's been a consistent over uh, six plus decades now. Uh, I mean, even today, when you you know search through images now that are available on the web, people take with their camera phones. Uh, a lot of them are disc-shaped objects. Right. I mean, I. I Assume any of them could be photoshopped, but I my my feeling is that most of them probably are not photoshopped. But uh, you're you're a good guy to to actually analyze some of those. Anyway, right. light phenomenon. Yes, this is something that I've noticed also. And the other thing that I noticed more of in uh, recent decades, like the last 15 years, is these little white balls, these white dots. Like I mean, most famously in Mexico in the early 1990s, when people were taking video down there, uh, you'd see um, large numbers of white dots. Now, what are those? Um, These have been seen a number of times as well in subsequent years. I don't know what these are, David, and are they they disc objects that are just very, very high up? Why are there so many of them? What are they doing just hanging out in the sky? How do they move the way they they do? Um, The only thing that I could say in terms of I mean, the only conclusion I would draw is that these, the intelligence that are behind this, are themselves dynamic. They're not, they're not static, and they, there's almost a kind of um, an interaction that that I sense. I mean, just I don't sense it psychically. I just I'm sensing in my my analysis of it that they're mm-hmm. they're doing some kind of interaction with us because. On the one hand, they're not making an overt statement by landing and coming out and saying, hi, how are you? On the other hand, they are, in many cases, making themselves very, very obvious uh, to us uh, as if they're making a kind of statement. So the, the other thing, they, they, they're either very dynamic and are um, interested in changing their appearance, or it also could be a signal that there are multiple groups. Or the third possibility, which maybe you can consider, Richard, and that is that they are perceived in a way that we interpret it to a certain degree and we alter the appearance subconsciously. Well, maybe, except, I mean, my God, to to alter the appearance so dramatically subconsciously just seems to me to be an incredible thing to say. We're all aware that our perception is often a factor in what we see. I would never deny that. But, you know, this is also a case where there are 
in various cases, there's photographic evidence of different objects. And these things look different. Um, is our perception that subjective that, you know, a, a triangle with landing lights can be perceived and then another time you're seeing this little white dot up in the sky? I, I don't know. Um, I would certainly leave in the possibility that we have subjective, you know, we have a very subjective way of seeing things, but I would also think that there are limits to that subjectivity. One of the things that uh, came out when we had a talk with Ted Phillips, who um, has done a huge amount of research on trace evidence cases, yeah. is that there was... a great was, deal of respect for him. He, he's absolutely fantastic. Why he's not better known in the field of research, I'm not sure. He doesn't seem to be a great self-marketeer, but in terms of the things that he's discovered, one of the things that I found really fascinating, Rich, was that he um, he said that fairly consistently, based on the two primary uh, craft shapes that he had been looking into, egg-shaped craft and disc-shaped craft, that almost all the time the egg-shaped craft would have four separate landing struts, and the disc-shaped oh. craft would have three of them. And he said that this was fairly consistent. Um, That's quite interesting, and I don't think that I was aware of that. Yeah. Well, well here's the thing about that. What that sort of suggests, well, first of all, it suggests two things that, uh, that I've thought about. A, it suggests a level of consistency, regardless of the specifics of the morphology, that there is a consistency, which one could basically make an argument that that's an engineering issue, that a triangulation of struts is the most efficient way in terms of taking up the least amount of space inside the craft for there to be landing gear, um, right. but that uh, you know the, the egg-shaped craft in terms of uh, stability really requires four struts. So that, 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 that consistency, in my mind, and I, I'm just drawing this conclusion right now as we're speaking, yeah. uh, w would almost indicate that we're talking about a single source for these things or that what we're talking about in terms of the slight differences of, of the morphology of these things, the shapes of these things, I start to think about the idea of looking at humans and automobiles, where basically, you know, autos all have, for the most part, four wheels, but that's about where the similarities end. Uh, you know, they all have grills. They all have right. headlights. They all have taillights. Right. They all have bumpers. But af after that, the variety of shapes and sizes and configurations is is almost infinite. And I wonder if there's a clue there to sourcing sure. things. Or like with, with aircraft, uh, you can right. say the same thing. Um, sure. Depending on the mission or the particular job that that aircraft or, you know, that is supposed to be able to do. Mm -hmm. and so, um, I mean, we have helicopters and we have uh, all different types of uh, air, airplanes and so on. Uh, and they are very distinguished from each other. Of course, all airplanes have basically the two wings and the tail configuration, but there's still, there's a lot of variation. So yeah, I think it could be from from a single source. I, I wouldn't deny that either. Of course, with such a proliferation of designs, one thing that I I occasionally wonder about is what is the um, it's pure speculation, but what is the infrastructure of such a civilization that can bring all of these different crafts with all of these specialized functions here to our world. Where are their manufacturing facilities? Are they, are they here? Are they uh, on some other world? Um, are they able with nanotechnology just to create these things, you know, 
out of nothingness, apparently. I'm, I don't have any answer to that, of course. But Right. It, it's an interesting question. And right. to my mind, at least, what it suggests, and this is going to sound absolutely cuckoo in a way, but what it suggests, I'm not saying it, it's this definitively, but it's almost as if you look at, you think about our space missions, our scientific missions, where you, you have a fairly consistent set of design parameters for craft. And so all of the Apollo landers pretty much look the same. Minor tweaks, but they all pretty much look the same. The Saturn rockets pretty much all look the same. Satellites that we send out or, or probes that we send out will look different based on their specific functionality, instrumentation, what they're going out to do. But when I look at the vast range of subtle differences in a lot of these craft, it's almost as if it's the equivalent of consumer technology, not vertical technology. And and to me, that almost suggests this crazy idea that sometimes pops into my head that maybe literally it's about this planet being an interesting place to visit. Hey, where are we going with the kids this weekend? Well, let's, let, let's, let's drop by Earth. Well, it, it almost then also sort of supports some of the incredibly bizarre interactions, the high strangeness interactions between some of these, or reported interactions between some of these creatures and humans, where yeah. some of the interactions seem to make zero sense. Not right, all of right. them. But and, and let's leave out the uh, the whole abduction scenario for the moment. I'm talking about like that one episode I read about in a Jacques Vallée book where this guy saw this craft and the beings in there were cooking these little pancakes. That was from, I remember that case. That was right. in 1961. Joe Symington. Uh, Joe Symington, I think, right? Right. Yeah. Right. They're cooking little, like, little... Little yeah, right, and they right, give him right. some in exchange for water. Now you, you stop and you think about that, and the thing is that apparently these he had trace, you know, physical evidence. He had these things; they were analyzed. Right. You know, I mean, why would he make this stuff up? So you look at that and you think, well, that interaction makes absolutely no sense from a logical point of view. But if it's literally the equivalent of driving up at the RV, oh, yeah, we need some water. Right, give him some pancakes. We'll take some water. I mean, it, it, right. From, it could also, you know, I, I've thought about that case. I think I mentioned it briefly in my book, in fact. I think you did, actually, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It could be that, like, tourists or a family, you know, out. Um, <laughs> or it could be, what if there is a kind of long-term presence that uh, you know that others have had here what if they have bred their own human population I, I often I've been speculating about a lot of this lately I think it could very well be the case you have human like people operating a lot of your craft for you uh, because frankly it would be easier for them to interact with the locals than for you to do so if you don't look sure sure so you know you could have your own mini uh, human society that's uh, you know you could have a complete underground very plush, nice facility for all I know that's very self-contained and you send them topside every so often to do things but what if um, on some mission they're out there and they they bump into Joe Symington you know, maybe it's maybe for them it's just uh, kind of an amusing, little fun encounter that's not, you know, they weren't on some kind of high military type mission so uh, maybe they were having a little bit of fun Right, and I'm not trying to make this all sort of you know jolly silly talk, but I think when we talk about this topic, it's really critical 
to look at all aspects of it. I mean, I give you another example to completely change the subject. These large craft, right? You've got these right. reports of massive triangular craft, a, a mile across. But the cigar craft I saw in Venezuela had to be a few thousand feet long. It was huge, huge, bigger than anything we have in the sky. And one thinks, okay, so if we look at the the comparisons of our, our technology, look at ships, largest ships, aircraft carriers, all right? They're, they're staging right. platforms, in essence. All right. Exactly. So we look at these huge craft, and it's sort of like the same situation. Are these, are we talking about staging craft? We have a, a, a triangle a mile long, a triangular vehicle, a mile wide. Right. One has to think... What what is the purpose of that scale? I mean, what's that about? Are we talking about craft that are removing a large amount of material from the planet? Are we talking about craft that are bringing a large amount of material to the planet? You have to. I mean, when we stop and think about these things right. at those base levels, I, it, again, look, we have to look for clues because I have to tell you, not to change the subject yet again, but. I had some real issues with some of what I heard at the X conference about the idea that, oh, yeah, you know, we know what this is. Uh, before we know what that is, I know what this is. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the podcast. We have Richard Dolan joining us on the PowerCast. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State. He's got Volume 1 out, Volume 2, and Volume 3 are following. David. So, okay, let, let's just get back to, the, to these large craft, uh, Rich. It, it, these large craft are fairly consistent in the history of these of reports about UFOs, correct? Right. They, they sporadically go back uh, many, many decades. Right. You get the occasional I, reports. I mean, not heavy density, but they, they go all the way back. It's true. Right, right. So those are fairly consistent. I know that at some point there were reports of very large disc craft. Those seem to have faded away, though. Um, I guess so. They're, depending on how far back we go. I mean, I think of uh, the 1986 uh, case of the uh, Japanese aircraft going across the Pacific to Alaska, mm-hmm. from Alaska, mm-hmm. rather. Where he described a craft, it wasn't exactly disc-shaped, uh, but it was sort of, I mean, 
similar to disc shape, I guess you could say, a little, a little deeper. And that was just humongous in his description. Uh, that was 20 years ago. I'm not so sure I wouldn't say that there are large disc shape craft that are described from time to time. But I would agree that typically when you hear the large descriptions these days, they seem to be more of a triangular. I wonder if I can turn the tables and ask a question of both of you. Sure. Um, Dave, since I know that you have a, a lot of background in uh, image manipulation as well through, through Adobe and your background in just CGI in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding the Phoenix Lights from 1997. Right. Now, you know, I don't know how entrenched my opinion on the Phoenix Lights even to this okay. day is. Yeah. My feeling is that it's a legitimate sighting. But now, even recently, I've been talking with people who say, oh, no, well, no, those were definitely aircraft. Not, I don't hear flares anymore. That, that, that's been kind of dropped, from what I can tell, because they, they don't look like flares, in my opinion. I, that's, and I don't know too many people who are willing to defend the flares explanation anymore. Maybe you are. But I do hear people now who are saying that uh, somebody, some guy, was looking at them through binoculars or a telescope, I don't know who this guy is, and said, oh, no, I absolutely can tell that those were aircraft in formation. Have either of you heard this explanation? No. Does anybody have an opinion on yeah. this fighting in general? Actually, uh, I, Rich, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll answer this first. I know Gene might have a thought about this as being an Arizona resident. I think what we're dealing with in terms of the Phoenix Lights episode in my opinion, are two separate events. I think that's really critical to draw this line and to differentiate between the large triangular craft seen earlier in the evening that there are many credible reports. We uh, we had Mike Fortson on the show, who yeah. was one of the uh, direct witnesses, and uh, I absolutely believe that he saw the truth. There are many other witnesses that have stepped forward describing the large triangular craft seen earlier in the evening. I think that has absolutely nothing to do with the event videotaped later on in the evening. Yeah, the lights. Um, the lights. I don't think that the two are in any way connected. Uh, I've had very long talks with our buddy Jeff Ritzman, who is my imaging research partner at this point. And um, what we both feel, and and I can't tell you I've got, I've I've had access to you know the original footage of some of those lights shot, because I think it would be fascinating to analyze those. Sure, right. But it's my guess, my educated guess, that what ended up happening, and it's not just because of the visuals themselves, but all of the other stuff surrounding this case, like Symington's behavior, is very questionable. And the fact that he comes out 10 years later and says, oh, yeah, I saw the large triangular craft. It's like, wait a minute, that's not how you handled the situation back then. So, in my opinion, what what went on is that there was a credible sighting of a large-scale triangular craft earlier in the evening, and then later on, those lights that we see the videotapes of, I think that was staged. Uh, As a a way to uh, essentially diffuse the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and but what if would I ha- be the technology? Like, what would these staging be? Are we talking flares? Are we talking aircraft? So here's the interesting part about that. How do you think create that? In other words, I think there are a few ways to create that. I don't think we're talking about aircraft because what kind of aircraft can be able to remain stationary like that? That's, that's my point. I've never, yeah. I haven't found the aircraft explanation convincing for exactly that reason. These lights yeah. don't appear to be moving, and to, and to keep the lights, I mean, they're they're in a very exact formation 
seems to me. That's right. Very, very tight. And to have aircraft that tight, I, I imagine it could be possible, but wow, that's, that's a heavy thing to do. Well, here's the thing. And again, um, I haven't seen the full footage. I've seen what pretty much everybody else has seen, which are small clips. All right? I haven't seen 15 minutes of consecutive footage. I'm going to guess here. I'm going on a limb, Rich, and, and yeah. until I have that footage, I won't absolutely positively state this, but based on my discussions with Ritzman, we feel there's a good possibility what we're talking about are skydivers that are basically being dropped in a formation that are starting up some kind of light element, whether it's a flare or really high-powered flashlight of some sort, or some sort of a, of, of, a, of a beacon of some sort, that we're talking about people who were dropped with parachutes okay. that then are holding these things and are deployed in a specific pattern. And my guess is that if we had the 20-minute version of this footage, what we would see is that they all come down very slowly, but they all come down and go behind that mountain that they're in front of. You know what's fascinating um, is that it's now been over a decade and we're still having these discussions. It's still unresolved. I live in Phoenix. I've lived in this area since 1993. I did not see the Phoenix Lights. I call them Phoenix Lights number one and two that evening, which is the large craft earlier in the evening. And I go along with David that the second incident was staged. I didn't okay. see the one that happened just a week or two ago where someone came out and said they staged it, which may or may not be true, but I give it less credence than the original event. As far as Governor Symington, you have to realize this guy in the 90s, he faced jail time for malfeasance in office. He right. was pardoned by President Clinton because of a personal favor, apparently. He apparently saved Clinton's life in some kind yeah. of swimming event. Right. So yeah. this is the reason that Simington was able to get out of jail free, a get out yeah. of jail free card. But now coming across and saying, yeah, it was something, well, I assume he probably is telling the truth as he sees it. On the other hand, it's something that's hard to really consider beyond that. Because he's not I, an expert on UFOs. What does he know? What does he uh, have my, to give my us? My feeling with, with Symington is that I, actually I, I credit his statement because the man had nothing to gain as, I, as far as I can see by saying what he did, admitting that he saw something. And in fact, he had every reason in 1997 to downplay those lights. Every reason. In fact, one of the statements that he made in later years was he, he was truly concerned about the um, threat of public panic. I, I don't think that totally was the issue. I think it was his own legal problems that may have influenced this. I may be panic. I understand that. But I also think that his own legal problems. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 
888-242-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Richard Dolan joining us for two hours on the PowerCast. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State. And I wanted to push another possibility here because of what David said. David says something and suddenly we have a thousand possibilities. Staging. Okay, the government, what do they know about UFOs? Maybe they know a lot. Are government agents staging certain UFO events as a means of research or as a way to cover up actual UFO events? I am asking you, my friend. Oh, yeah. I think that, let me ease into this. In terms of released documents, I think that this is possibly the case that there have been documents that have been tampered, maybe even fabricated, that have been, that have seeped into the public domain, which have completely muddied the waters of UFO research and have made it so difficult now for researchers to work off of documentary to work off of a lot of documentary evidence. And I think that this was probably done. And here's, here's my scenario. This, this, I'm actually done with all the writing of this. This is going into it's in the book. Which is that in the late 1970s, you have two major new developments in UFO research which really threatened to overturn everything that we thought we knew. One was the advent of the Strengthened Freedom of Information Act, which you know, prior to the late 1970s, it had not been enforced it had not been possible to requisition a, a whole bunch of UFO documents out of the government. Now it's suddenly it was. And a lot of those documents in the late 70s were, were pretty explosive, dealing with uh, a lot of military encounters, for example, with UFOs and, and certain very interesting policy positions on it, too, which was a big deal because for decade after decade, the government had said, we, we, we don't do UFOs, we don't investigate. And then suddenly thousands of pages of documents, several hundred of which were very good, prove otherwise. That was one problem. The other problem was that leaks from the inside about retrieved hardware were now starting to come out. Prior to the mid-late 70s, this had been very, very minimal. And so suddenly now, the difference between 1975 and 1980, absolutely dramatic. If you're a secret keeper, you know, you're the guy who's, uh, one of your jobs is to kind of manage all of this. How different the the environment would look in 1980 than it did in 1975. So on two major fronts, because Roswell was starting to break, but not only Roswell. There were many, many other stories, many of them leaked through uh, the researcher Leonard Stringfield, who happened to be collecting all of these crash retrieval stories from a lot of military people. So suddenly on, on these two different fronts, you've got a real problem to deal with. So what do you do about that problem? One thing that you might do is fabricate documents that look very real. You leak them out into the public, and you throw researchers off off the trail for many, many years. And these are the Majestic 12 documents. Absolutely. Now, you know, the thing about the MJ-12 documents and also the subsequent 
majestic documents, uh, nearly all of which I think are available at the website of Ryan and Bob Wood. These are, you know, some members of, of like, for example, the skeptical group Scott Psychop have called the majestic documents a uh, cheap hoax, you know, simple hoax. Well, if they're a hoax, they're not cheap and they're not simple. Uh, in my opinion, these are very, very sophisticated documents. In particular, when you when you print off every one of those majestic documents and you stack them up, it's, it's like two inches thick, at least. It's a lot of paper there. So it's not just 10 or 15 pages of documents, but several hundred pages of very, very high-level, intellectually challenging, sophisticated-looking documents that deal with a full array of extraterrestrial issues. Okay, so from within the intelligence community, these are really strong documents. And so, but are they fake? Well, I think some of them, I was just looking at one the other day, which I believe has absolute definite disinformation in it. I can, I can go over that with you if you like. But Please. the thing is, I, I believe, yeah, I'd be happy to, but I think these documents are massaged in various ways. Now, the other possibility, and I, I keep this open, is that they are legitimate documents that might, you might argue, that would have elements of disinformation in them to protect certain pieces of data, even if they are legitimate documents. I mean, the intelligence community is a convoluted thing, and I don't pretend that I have inside information here, but talking to some members of the intel community who discuss this with me, I think that's a possibility. So, in other words, even if a document does have provably false information, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a fake. So, anyway, to, to answer your question first, Gina... Well, you know what, can, can I just drop, drop something or interrupt for a second, please? Uh, sure. Forgive me. Okay. Now, it has provably false information, even though maybe it's not fake. Does that mean that maybe if an outsider gets a hold of this document, they'll seize on the fake information, assume it's fake, and not know that's a red herring? Right, right, exactly. Oh, boy. So, for example, there's a document I've just been looking at uh, in the last few days. Um, it's, I'm trying to remember the exact title. It's, a 19, it's an alleged document from 1952. It's the first annual Majestic 12 uh, annual report. I think that's the title. It's about 15 or 17 pages. And you can get this on the Woods website. And I, I just was recently revisiting this document. I was looking at it again. And when I read through it, it's very, I mean, it's fascinating to read. It's very well prepared. It looks, it looks totally authentic to me. One part of it, however, describes crash sites. There are several crash sites that are described in here, and one of them was labeled as L2, where it was described that this particular site had a, a very high amount of, um, of very good materials to be recovered. It was, a, it was an exceptionally good crash site. Now, that document happened to give exact latitude and longitude coordinates. It was right in there. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of neat. I had Google Earth. <laughs> I'm going to go. I want to check out those coordinates. So I did this, and uh, it's in New Mexico. It's, you know, you're looking at the desert area, and it's a little bit uh, northwest of Roswell. And I go down, and I, I get to zoom right in with Google Earth because it's a great tool. And the, the exact coordinates are inside a, a circle, like a dirt road circle. That's hmm. about half a mile in diameter. I mean, it's very, very like, wow, there's hmm. nothing all around here. And... You know, there's a tiny little building, and I'm thinking, what the heck is in here? This is very odd. And I, I thought, I got very excited. I wonder if I found something here. 
and I looked around, and there's other bizarre little things. And then I, I realized, oh, wait, well, let me turn on the roads feature of Google Earth and some of the other, like, the tourist features and stuff. And I was in the middle of, I was in the northwest part of White Sands Missile Range, and I was at the Trinity site. I was huh. exactly at the Trinity site. Huh. In other words, the coordinates that were in that document were exactly the coordinates where the first atomic bomb was detonated. That lost, you know, what, in July 16, 1945. So now here's the thing. All right, you got this very, very authentic-looking document that gives coordinates of an alleged crash retrieval. But those coordinates are exactly the coordinates of the Trinity site. I find that a rather far-fetched for me to believe, and especially so because the document itself did not mention that this was a Trinity site. I mean, huh. certainly you would you would assume if a UFO, a flying saucer crashed at the Trinity site, like right there, you might think that instead of giving the coordinates, it would also say, which happened to be the, the Trinity test site. But it didn't say that. Um, so what I'm thinking is, I, mean, I don't know what to make of this document. It, it seems like a complete red herring to me. I find it very not credible that a UFO would happen to crash exactly at that spot. Well, maybe the people who faked this document knew that and figured, gee, people will look at that and say, oh, the synchronicity, wow. It could be. I mean, it, sure, I don't, I, it's possible that they would think that. But, I mean, from my point of view as a researcher, I, I look at that and I think, well, that's, that's a really major mark against that document. Yeah. So, um, now, th does that mean it's, it's a complete fake? And if it's a fake... Here's the thing about all those documents, and this, this indirectly goes back to your question about is the military staging things. I mean, because I'm dealing with it in terms of documents. If these are fake, if they're not dealing with truth in any uh, profound way, there's no way, in my opinion, that these could be made by just one guy. You'd have to have an IQ of 250 or higher, in my opinion, to have done all of those that well. I just I can't see it. So then... Who would have been able to fake all those documents? And the only conclusion that I can come to is that it's a very coordinated, very well-oiled operation that would have to be some kind of intelligence community operation. I, I cannot personally see how this could have been done by private individuals working on their own. I just if someone can show me, then I'll, I'm listening. But I don't, I don't see that. No, no. It's a well, very, very. There's a lot of sensitive information that is discussed, and a lot of sensitive jargon is very correctly used in many of these documents. So it would be an inside intel black op type of uh, you know disinformation campaign, but my feeling is the very existence of that type of operation would lend credence to the UFO reality anyway. I mean, why, why would you bother creating such a huge mass of fake documents on well, the deal with ET? I, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, absolutely. I don't why one would do this. Here's the thing about that, Rich and Gene. When you look at the history of all of this, one of the things, and, and Rich, I've referenced uh, UFOs and the, and the national security state as proof that if nothing else, if nothing else, you throw everything else aside, if nothing else, your book absolutely positively proves a longstanding, consistent policy of not only secrecy, because I think that's absolutely obviously clear, but also confusion, S dissemination of confusion, and uh, what, what, what is it? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. 
this is a, this is a consistent element. And we look at the Phoenix Lights episode. Yeah. Gee, here's a credible thing, then later on, something weird to sort of make you go, oh, I don't know what's going on. Then, let's expand that. Now you have, in 2001, Greer's Disclosure Project, where you've got highly credible witnesses right. on a stage with highly problematic witnesses, all stirred together in the same pot, thereby right. poisoning everyone in the pool. And presented in such a way, let's just add, with a political and a kind of social approach or agenda that it was designed, in my opinion, that, that was never going to go more than five feet forward before right. it gets spots in his tracks. Well, well and a very major political component that just killed that press conference, in my opinion. Well, you know what, Rich? The problem is, and you might not like me for saying this, but now having gone to two X conferences, Honestly, I've walked away with the same feeling. I see people like you, who I find highly credible, mixed in with people who I really have to wonder about their motives, their agendas. And so I'm seeing, from my point of view, and I've not been involved with this field in any serious way up until I started doing the Paracast with Gene. I'm a lifelong experiencer of all sorts of paranormal weirdness that found myself compelled to now talk about these things publicly in the last couple of years. So I've only got two years of actually really interacting with the community, the field, as it were. Okay, right. So I'll qualify. I, I have a somewhat limited amount of exposure, but I think in many ways that's a good thing. Because I look at all of this and I walked away from the X conference thinking, something doesn't smell right here. There's something not right. There are, I mean, for example, sadly, I missed your presentation on Friday. We didn't get there till Friday night. But Saturday morning, I sat through this fellow John Alexander's presentation. Uh, now, very interesting presentation in many ways. A lot of what he was saying, I was like, oh, yeah, that's my point of view. But then he comes out with, by the way, I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, he says, but, you know, the military's not really interested in this. And you're just going to have to get over it. And I thought, well, that's absolute nonsense. So here he is, and I'm looking at the guy, and there were all sorts of other physical cues and body language issues that I was reading in him that made me really wonder what he was about. Well, you and, and probably <laughs> everybody else in the audience. Right, right, but... But there's this consistency. And again, I walked away from now two X conferences thinking, something's not right here. There is, I saw in many ways, something very similar to what I saw going on with that 2001 Disclosure Project conference. A consistent sort of a, a what's the word I need here? A devaluation of any legitimacy by poisoning the pool. And it looks like this is consistent policy. This is like a plot to discredit the genuine information. Well, and so one has to wonder why. Why, Richard? Okay, well... What's John, really going on here? Regarding the ex-conference, I, I'm, uh, I think I'm one of two individuals who has spoken at every single ex-conference. And I think okay. the other person is Bruce McAbee, if I'm not mistaken. If there's anyone I'm missing there, I apologize to them, but... I've been associated with it from the beginning. Stephen Bassett has asked me every single year to, to be there. Right. You know, there are two things going on when you run a conference. One is you're trying to get a message out, and two is you're trying to bring in people to attend so you can 
at least if not make money, then hopefully not lose a lot of money. Sure. So toward that end, I think overall Stephen's goal is to bring in what he feels are very, uh, he feels that these are credible people who have something important to say about the government aspects of UFO secrecy. Um, he also has brought in individuals who he knows are going to be more of the crowd pleasers rather than the, um, the hardcore, hard-hitting types of, uh, of speakers that I just spoke about. So there's always going to be balance there. I mean, you know, he had George Nori come in to speak. And George is uh, a very famous man. He's not a UFO researcher per se. He's certainly not a, uh, a parapolitical type of researcher per se. He's a, he's a public on-air personality. But George Norrie brought in a lot of people to the conference, and so it was just worth Stephen's while to do it. Regarding someone like Alexander, I'm trying to figure all of that out myself. Uh, John Alexander's talk was the one talk at the X conference that was not recorded. It was not allowed to be recorded. You did not, oh, really? Not permitted. So you cannot get a DVD of that. I, I took very, very thorough notes all, all the while he was talking. Uh, knowing that I, there was not going to be a DVD available, and I did. I'm actually I'm still processing all of that. And in fact, I'm talking to a couple of people about it. I intend to be talking to him about it too. Some of the mm -hmm. things that he said, I want, I want him to follow up. And the point that he made was that, like you said, the military is not truly interested in UFOs. Now, there's a, there was a good point he made in there, which I, I think that I agree with, which is that you know, he emphasized the bureaucratic institutional nature of our government. Sure. Uh, and so that, you know, each agency has a particular mandate, and for most of those agencies, unidentified flying objects is just not part of it. And so that there's not going to be an institutional interest. He emphasized the difference between a personal interest that an individual within the military might have and then the institutional interest that they may have. You know, one one uh, way out of his this so-called conundrum is what he didn't deal with are the so-called black agencies, you know, the, right. um, the, the black exactly arms correct. of government. Right. And so on an official basis, that could very well be the case. Like, for example, uh, about five years ago, the first time that I met John Alexander, I gave a talk, the only time I've ever given a talk publicly on remote viewing, I, I did this. I'll tell you what, before we, let's leave a cliffhanger. You're giving yeah. a talk on remote viewing, and I'm telling our listeners at the PowerCast, we'll return with part two in a moment. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. 
That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We return with Richard Dolan. He is author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1 was released a few years back. Volume 2 is coming out this year, and he's working also on a Volume 3. Too much to get into a single Volume 2. Now, we're going back in time. You gave your one and only lecture, Richard, on remote viewing. So what happened then? Yeah, so um, I think it was 2003. So I gave this little chat on remote viewing, and uh, after that, John Alexander came to my table. You know, we all have like little vendor tables, and you sell your books and your DVDs and all that. And I'm sitting there, and he walked up to me. I had never spoken to him before. And the very first thing he said to me was, well, you should realize that the United States government does not, I'm, I'm trying to get his language as, as well as I can remember, the United States government does not do remote viewing. That's not part of anything that the government does in any way, or the United States government. Mm. And I, I looked at him, I didn't, I almost didn't say a word. I said, you're telling me that nobody does this. He says, the United States government does not engage in any of that. And then he basically walked away, and I thought, well, okay, that's a nice lawyerly statement, but of course, does that mean that there are no independent private contractors <laughs> working with total deniability in, under deep black cover that are doing remote viewing. You know, the, the, the point is when you deal with a topic like that, which showed remote viewing in, in this case, showed absolute connections to, I mean, there were things that these people were seeing that were real and were true, in my opinion, and, and that of the, a lot of the people in that program. I didn't find it very credible that there would be no interest in this at all, not, not, no credibility at all. But he made the statement that there's no interest by the government and by the military in this, and then just walked away. Hmm. But he, this is a man who is he's a very, he's got a lot of responsibilities, and I'm not someone who looks on him as this, uh, I mean, I think he's, everyone's a complex person, and that includes him. There are people in the UFO field who really have demonized him, and I'm not really sure that that's the best way to look at someone like John Alexander. He's someone who's had a very, very prominent career, and he's had a lot of responsibility, and I know he's very interested in this topic, and it, I think it's also true that he's um, in a position where he can't reveal all the things that he knows. Right. Um, you know, we all get stuck by life in one way or another. Well, the, the thing about it that you just identified though, that I found interesting, Richard, was that you said that he's been demonized by the UFO community slash field. Well, this would be the same field that uh, apparently demonized Dr. Jacques Vallée as well at a certain point. It almost seems that when people start getting close to something real in terms of research, in terms of observations, in terms of uh, discovery in this field, people get a little too close to something real and it's as if that pretty much puts them out. It kills their credibility. This is really fascinating. And the reason I bring this up, guys, is that at the X conference, Stephen Bassett 
pretty much, and, and, and this is well documented in Jeremy Vaney's writings online about this. This is in my own experiences with him one-on-one. Bassett is absolutely convinced, all right, this is extraterrestrial. There is ongoing communications with the political powers that be, and we have to disclose that reality. And, and actually, Bassett said something very fascinating to me. He said, UFOs, UFOs are in the past. That's old stuff. We should forget about that. Now, the now is ETA, extraterrestrial hypothesis. Now, uh, we could talk for an hour about the complete disconnected reality of that statement from any kind of actual reality. That, you know, what are you saying? That, oh, at one point there were unidentified flying objects, but now we've identified them and they're extraterrestrial nature? I don't buy it. I think that Valet, quite frankly, in his later writings, was probably getting closer to a real truth about what's really going on here. And at that point, two things happened. A lot of the people who were in the field attacked him, just openly attacked him. And it seems to me that made him basically completely pull away. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that Valet did in uh, the late... 70s was uh, not so coyly to accuse large parts of the UFO research community of being infiltrated by the intelligence world. Right. Basically, no uncertain terms said that this had happened at KUFOS, which was uh, J. Allen Hynek's organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When he said that, he got a lot of people in that organization very mad at him. Well, sure. But of course, what he, he only said what a lot of people have, uh, have talked about quietly anyway. The longer that I'm in this field talking with people, the more I hear uh, quiet suspicions about this researcher or that researcher having secret intelligence community connections. It's, it's, it's rampant in this field. Right. There's a tremendous amount of distrust. Valet said that. But the other thing about his, uh, his take on, on UFOs is, yeah, I mean, I think it's true that he made a lot of people very unhappy right. with his ideas, um, not all of which, frankly, were as clearly expressed as some of us would like. To be perfectly fair, Valet was very unhappy with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Okay, fair enough. What do you replace it with? Uh, it was. It's not really always even clear to me what what his alternate hypothesis is. Is it beings from a different dimension? Is it time travel? Is it uh, is it a covert terrestrial program? to create UFOs. Sometimes I get the idea it's any one of those three things from him. And it's not that he's obligated to have a, a theory, but sometimes I feel he's, he's a little more coy about what he thinks than, than I would like. Here's the thing about that, Rich. There was one of, the, uh, one of our show listeners who's active on the forums uh, put up a really interesting post about our ability to understand the reality of the UFO phenomenon. And basically the... The metaphor that they used was, imagine a uh, an animal out in the wild, a silverback gorilla, right. a zebra, you know, and it's got an, a helicopter landing next to it. Now, it sees the shape, it sees the form, it's aware that there's this thing that's not part of its quote-unquote normal experience, right. but does it have any ability to comprehend anything about intent, source, Exactly. No, it, it doesn't. It basically has a reaction exactly. and that, or that's dictated by its genetic programming. Yes. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to project that onto our relationship with whatever this is. 
And I think that in my in my mind, reading Valet's works, I think he was trying to get us going in that direction. Now, the thing about Valet is that he's very careful. We had him on the show, uh, which we were thrilled about. He's, he's coming back on again. And in talking to Jacques Valet, it's very clear to me that this is someone who, in, in our interactions with him, has been very careful in what he says. He, he does not say things, you know, flippantly, like, like myself. He'll think very carefully and formulate an answer that, to questions that, essentially states that he doesn't know the answers, but it's kind of like, let's move in a direction. Maybe if we move in that direction, we can get closer. From a, from a physics point of view, it's probably really important. And I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm not a physicist, but physics has always been a very deep interest of mine, and it was actually one of my favorite topics in school, uh, both in, 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 in high school and in college. One of the things that's pretty clear to me is that if we are talking about extraterrestrial beings... The sheer technology, the act of moving between stellar systems, if you figure out how to do this, really the only way to do it is to alter the nature of space-time. That's right, exactly. It's the only way to do it, right? So, right? So what you have to do is basically you change the rules, thereby the rules no longer apply to you. Well, I, here's the thing about that. Yeah. If you're able to do that, if you have a technology that can do that, then in my opinion, there is no difference at that point between an extraterrestrial being, an interdimensional being, or an intertemporal being. There's no difference. It's the one and the same. And so it would be so far beyond what we're able to to handle. That that's it, right. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. That's right. And this leads that now. Let's bring this right back to the issue of government secrecy because in my long discussions with Jeff Ritzman about this and in discussions I've had with Gene about this and other friends, including my lovely girlfriend who's now fascinated by this topic, what seems to me to be a good potential explanation for the military's secrecy about this is that, and, and as I said, uh, Rich, based on your book, I have... No doubts that the government has retrieved some amount of artifacts, some amount of technology, and they've been studying this stuff. And unlike what Corso claims, I think that they have, A, not been able to figure out any of this stuff. It is so far beyond us that they don't know what the hell they're looking at. And B, what that means is that if there were ever going to be disclosure of this, what the government would have to come out and say is we don't know what the hell this is. And that is the, if you talk about security of knowledge of who and what we are, and like that the military, their mandate is right. to secure us, right? Right, right? Well, then in a literal sense, they can't let that information out because that information would have the effect of making us deeply insecure at an emotional and intellectual level. Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. I think that it's, it is entirely possible that we have not been able to do jack with their technology. That's, to use a, a slang, we, we may not. But yeah. it's also yeah. possible that even if we really had no chance of truly duplicating it, I still think it's very possible that the possession of those artifacts could very well have sparked other insights and innovations in our own technology. 
I, I firmly believe that had we never gotten a single alien artifact, that we would still be very likely on an exponential growth curve, because that's just, I think, the way the technology goes. But Absolutely. We might, not be, we might not be quite as far along the, uh, the curve, possibly. I think that might be the one difference that possession of alien technology had. But even if we can't duplicate what they have had, and I've had this told to me by uh, a couple of individuals that I think I at least worth listening to, that doesn't mean that, that it would have been of no value to us. So, so that there's a reason for the continued secrecy if you want to maintain a monopoly of possession of these artifacts, which I can see that being the case. But you, you're also right that there's, there's a lot of uh, public policy issues that come out if you start talking about this. Uh, the whole idea of, you know, we can't protect the public. But then there's the, the, the absolute undeniable reality of the fact that for 60 years, our jets have been chasing these things. And there's just too many accounts of this having been the case to deny it. Uh, from the 1940s sure. right up until our, our decade, I mean, Stephenville, Texas, there are Absolutely. incredible cases of SMB mm-hmm. chasing this huge object. Mm-hmm. So... And then you had it a, a little over five years ago, just outside of Washington, D.C., again, where there were F-16s seen chasing this bluish, light bluish object that just totally outperformed them. So there's a policy that evidently remains in place for us to chase them. So there's trouble in paradise here. Yeah. Whatever that relationship is, there's something that's confrontational that's going on. It's not all... You know, fun and games here. Okay, so we're not having a Project Serpo. We don't have a Project Serpo thing. I'll ask you about that in a moment. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hi this is brad steiger and i'm in the paracast with gene steiger and david Diedney. join us as we explore new dimensions of thought richard dolan author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1's out, 2 and 3 are coming. Joining us this week on the PowerCast, and I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, so jet aircraft goes after UFOs. Now, there was that book that Frank Faschino and Stan Friedman wrote, Shoot Them Down. So have we really shot down UFOs? Um, It looks like it to me. I think that they're, well, we've shot at them. Have we actually shot them down? Have we brought them down? That's a good question. I don't know of any case where I can say we've definitely confirmed that we've shot down a UFO. I don't know of a single case. There's a case um, from, I think it's 19, yes, 1980, a Peruvian case. It's fascinating. It's one of the most 
amazing cases, and it's, it, most people have completely forgotten about it. This is more amazing than the 1980 Rendlesham case, in my opinion, uh, which is far better known, where a UFO landed in, you know, near American Air Base in Britain. In this case, in Peru, for two days in a row, in May of 1980, there was, uh, at a Peruvian air base, this UFO was seen right just like a couple of miles off the airfield. And on the first day, I think May 9th, a, a jet fighter was scrambled to intercept this object. The jet actually fired on the object. And this is in a U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency document that we have this very detailed account. Fired on the object with no effect whatsoever. Uh, a pursuit then began, and the object just completely outdistanced the jet fighter. The following day, and the jet fighter was an Su-22 uh, fighter-bomber aircraft, which was not the fastest fighter in the world, but it's, it was up there. It was a very, very high-performance aircraft. And then the following day, a near repeat of the first day occurred, except that this time the, the uh, fighter did not fire on the UFO, but a chase ensued, and this object just completely outdistanced it. So they outclass our aircraft, and have we actually shot them down? I think it's, it's entirely possible that we've shot them down, only because of the sheer probable number of close encounters in the air that are of a confrontational nature. I, I would think in 60 years' time, we might have had the ability to take one to them down. Certainly a couple of them have gone down, and certainly I think there's good evidence within the leaked, the land of leaks, let's call it, that we've gotten some of their technology somehow, so presumably we might, we might have shot them down. Well, you know, that goes back to Philip Corso, that maybe right. some very elementary aspects of their technology we were able to ferret out and present to private industry to help them enhance their capabilities. Not saying that everything was invented by bringing in alien technology, but say you are at step three in developing printed circuits, and somebody brings you technology to take you to step six really fast, like a few years faster. Right. Would you buy it if they told you, yes, this will be credited in the patent office as belonging to you? Yes, absolutely. It'd be, well, wouldn't that be the greatest thing, right? What company would not want that? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's what has happened. Uh, I'm prepared to credit a fair amount of, of the Corso thesis, by the way. I, uh, you know, I'm fully aware that there are many, many grave errors uh, within his book, uh, really egregious and unforgivable errors in his book. Let's keep going that far. But uh, it's also true, and I think it's becoming widely known now, that when that book was published, a lot of those errors were brought to Corso's attention. And his response frequently was, what? That's in the book? That's not what I said at all. Uh, keeping in mind that Corso co-authored that book. With well, the other thing is here we had Bill Burns on, and we asked him about that. He said, look, I take responsibility for the errors. But he pointed out that when the first galleys came through from the publisher, right. Corso was very ill. And I would expect it's possible his concentration really wasn't good. And it's also possible that it was done on a rush-rush basis. The book had gone through several hands and to be they charitable. They, they wanted to get it out for the 50th anniversary, right? Absolutely. They rushed it, and a lot of errors remained in the book, and Corso right. did not survive long enough to correct them for a subsequent edition. So there we go. Right, right. And it, it's a shame because you know, I never met Corso. I never had the opportunity. Every person that I know who has met him has held him in very high regard, personally. 
And I've seen a lot of video, of Corso, talking. And the one thing that Corso discusses that I have to admit, really, I'm still perplexed by is uh, it has nothing to do with the uh, possession and handing off of exotic technology. I don't, I don't really have a problem with that. But I, I'm a little more concerned about his statements that uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, 50s, I think, that the U.S. military was concerned about abductions and cattle mutilations. In the now, 50s? In the 50s. The, he has said this on video. I've, I've watched the video. Hmm. I'm saying this. And... You know, as a lot of people realize and study this, I mean, it's not that there might not have been abductions or there might not have been cattle mutilations at that time, but no one was really aware of these. Researchers were not aware at all of the cattle mutilation phenomenon, which didn't really take off until the 70s. I mean, there was a couple of cases in the 60s. but And as far as abductions go, uh, again, the same thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, retrospectively, researchers like Bud Hopkins and, and Dave Jacobs argue that their evidence shows that there were abductions taking place in the 50s and, and, and possibly even earlier. But this is not something that any researcher was aware of at the time. Now, maybe the military was aware and the civilians were. That's, I guess that's possible. But I mean, this is one thing that course is just kind of tossed out there. And he made it a very explicit statement. So I, I question that. I do. On the other hand, I think that that there's certain things that he said in his um, statement about ha- passing off technology that could very well be credible. I've always been of double minds body, with Corso, you know. Body at Fort Riley, the Fort Riley body. Yeah. He, you know, happened to be in the right place to see an alien body in 1947. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Some people yeah, have a problem with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Dan Friedman has, has repeatedly expressed his problem with it. Yeah, I can't fault Dan Friedman on that on that on that position. It's uh, it's asking a lot, I guess, right? <laughs> well, so one question about the secrecy issue, and this is what struck me after reading the uh, the Corso uh, Burns book. All right, so we know that you can definitely maintain a good level of secrecy inside of the military. We know this. We know that the government can maintain a certain level of secrecy outside of the military. We know this. Things have become a little iffier now in the electronic age, but certainly back then it was probably easier to maintain secrets. And the Manhattan Project is a great example of that. Um, It just so happens I have a close friend whose father was Seth Niedermeyer, uh, the discoverer of the positron and part of the Manhattan Project, a key part of the Manhattan Project. And I've had long talks with my friend about his father's work and the environment of secrecy under which those things operated. And the, the Manhattan Project absolutely was, was probably one of the best kept secrets of all of our history as a country. But when we then extrapolate to the passing of information to private industry, and in some cases, not just private industry, but public companies, I have a much harder time accepting the idea that decent levels of secrecy could be maintained inside of corporations. And let me be specific about that. I'm bringing that point up in the context of piracy between companies and spying between companies. I would have to think that it would have been very difficult, perhaps impossible, to keep a lid on this stuff. And so what happens when you bring that point up is that someone will say, well, the companies didn't have enough information to really know about sourcing. They didn't really know about the artifacts enough to draw any conclusions and 
again, if we get back to the process of re-engineering and reverse engineering, come on. You're going you're gonna to give a company or you're going to give researchers a piece of technology that's so far out there and they're going to look at this and not think, what the hell's going on? Because, you see, that that topic, I worked on Terminator 2. I did effects for that movie. And so that's a key part of, of the movie in that, um, you know, you've got the salvaged chip and the arm, and they're in a locker, and you need two keys to get in, and yeah, there's, right. Right, there's that whole thing. Right. But clearly, what you also have is that that's a movie, A. It's not reality. It's a film. But yeah. more importantly... B, in that kind of a situation, companies expend a lot of effort. They, they throw a lot of money at being able to figure out what's going on in the labs of someone else. So that nowhere along that chain there was a leak, that's what I don't find credible. Well, I'm not sure I would agree with you on that, on that uh, statement, David. I am speaking with a couple of people who have experience with special access programs. Yeah. Uh, military people. I've heard this now from, from two people explicitly who've, who've dealt in that world and then from the bit of research that I'm able to do on it. The, the private contractors uh, have, have outstanding security, uh, even hmm. compared with the military. From what I had been told personally by some of the military people, these, these are officers, high-level people, a couple of them, who have said to me, Northrop, Lockheed, their security is outstanding. And, and superior to that military has. That, that's in their assessment. I'm not in a position to to measure, you know, how effective Lockheed's security is compared with the, the Defense Department. I do know that in uh, another study of special access programs by Bill Sweetman, this is now becoming a little dated. It's from the year 2000. Sweetman, who's an aviation writer, he does he doesn't do UFOs, but he does write a lot on cutting edge. Uh, Air aviation technology issues. He's written a bit about Groom Lake. So he's kind of on the periphery of writing about the UFO topic, I guess. But Sweetman did a study for James International uh, Weekly back in 2000 on uh, special access programs. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he concluded was that a large number of special access programs appeared to be dominated not by the uh, Defense Department personnel, but rather by contractors. And by, by that he meant like the project managers who really ran the project. Many of these people were private industry, and that the DOD uh, liaison was, was little more than a, a funding gateway to bring money into the program, but they were actually dominated by the contractors. And that the secrecy on these was absolutely top-notch. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not prepared to dismiss the ability of private corporations of maintaining secrets. And well, I'm, I'm not dismissing, I'm just questioning, yeah. and especially at the time. Things have changed in the electronic era, but we're talking about a time when I could understand secrecy in the military because of the strong patriotic bent of the military, right? but maybe less of that strong patriotic sort of underpinnings in private industry. I think it would still be fairly easy to keep the secret if you uh, subject individuals to security oaths and security clearances. Whether they're, uh, you know, I'm here in Rochester where East Makodak for many, many years has a long, long history of high-level uh, defense work uh, dealing mm-hmm. with optics. And so there are many Kodak people who have had, I mean, very, very high-level security clearances. And I'll guarantee you that those people periodically are checked on 
by uh, handlers who are appointed to just make sure that, you know, everything's cool. You know, are <laughs> not talking. Yeah. Yeah. People get monitored, whether they're military or private industry. Their controls are in place to make sure that they're not just talking about these things in a reckless way. Hey, we don't want to be reckless. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for nineteen ninety-five, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues. Issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe. When you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item Powercast Offer $19.95, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with James We're talking to Richard Dolan. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1 is out. Been out for several years. He's working. He's working on Volume 2 and what has become Volume 3. I'm, I'm becoming excited about Volume 2. It, <laughs> and I just may say, it's, you know, there are people who can crank out book after book, and I truly wish that I were one of these people. Of course, I have a few other things happening in my life. Unlike most UFO researchers, I'm married and I have children that are actively like growing up <laughs> a lot of these people in the, in the research fields uh, I talk with them and they don't have kids in their house yeah. so try to write a book when you got two kids in fact that you're homeschooling two kids which is what my wife and I do and you know I have a day job I can't I don't do the UFO research every single day full time I wish I did uh, the book would be done by now but what I what I can say is that the, the process of researching uh the last 35 years now of UFO history. Um, it took me several years after I wrote that first book to begin to get up to speed on the recent history. And I feel that I've done that. So now writing this history has just been, it's very difficult. It's almost like going in and doing sumo wrestling with this big guy who's throwing you around the ring because there's all this mass of information I feel like I'm wrestling with to try to create a sense of order 
and, and to provide some logical analysis. And I'm at the point now where closing in on, I think, 400 pages of text approximately, I think if, if it were to be bound as a book, it would be close to 400 pages right now. So I'm really starting to see that this book is coming together. And gosh, I, I have not felt this optimistic about it ever because I felt this very, very strong obligation over me to get that book done. A lot of people like that first book. And for the last five years, I've heard people say, okay, so when's volume two coming out? When's volume two coming out? And after a while, I just feel like ducking the issue. I feel like a politician in a scandal. I just don't want to answer any more questions. <laughs> you so feel like Microsoft coming out with Windows Vista. Yeah, right. And uh, on a very micro scale, certainly. And But I can identify with some of these people who just want to avoid the question because whenever I'm in, a, in the public at a conference, for example, I feel embarrassed that the book isn't done. I want it to be done. But at least I can say now that um, I'm very pleased with the large majority of what I've written. I'll probably want to go over it, uh, clean it over maybe one or two more times. But the writing itself that's in there, honestly, I feel that there's a narrative in there that even experienced researchers have probably forgotten about half the stuff that's in, in this book. So, And for new people, I think it'll, it'll be very engaging. And, it, uh, you know, my goal is to tie together... A, this history in a way that cannot possibly be a final word. I really, I want it to be a good first word, though, so that future researchers and other researchers can, can take that, make corrections, you know, develop certain themes that I may be only able to touch on, and so on. I mean, I want it to be a good touching off point for further research, and I really want that to be the main if there's a legacy of, of that book, I want it to be that. I want it to help be a, a kind of foundation for further progress made in this field. In light of what you've done, in light of the research that you've done, your ongoing research, let's move to that other huge topic, which always comes up, disclosure. From yeah. the 1950s through the present day, we have had people urging disclosure. Major Donald right. Kehoe talked about it in books like The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, which is, I think, 1956, as a matter of fact. And so there have been that kind of content in books, demands for disclosure. It's 2008. Nothing's happening. It never seems to happen. Now, I had one crazy theory, and because it's a crazy theory, you can tell me, Gene, you're crazy. And I will say I agree with you. And David always tells me how crazy I am. Right, David? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gradual disclosure. Gradual disclosure. Like, for example, we learned in the 1990s and 1980s, late 80s perhaps, that there might have been or might still be microbial life on Mars. So we're used to the idea of life elsewhere. And now we see developments where we've discovered planets and other star systems, some of which may be Earth-like. Therefore, life is common in the universe. We've become accustomed to that fact. It's not just watching Star Trek on TV and the movies and whatever else there's been out there. We are accustomed to the idea that E.T. is out there. So how many steps of logic does it take to think that maybe E.T. is coming here? And these developments are not just part of the natural evolution of science, but sponsored a bit by the government to get us used to the idea so when there is disclosure it won't be in one fell swoop it'll be little bits and pieces as they deem we're able to handle it i've wondered about this idea gene and i don't think that's a crazy thought when i think about that however i would make a distinction between um preparing the, the great the general public 
and then preparing the kind of intellectual elite of the society. It seems to me that maybe back in 1950, the general public could have been very well prepared after an initial shock, certainly, to accept that there were uh, beings from another planet here. I mean, look, even in the popular culture of that day, there, there was a lot in terms of movies, and some of them were, you know, creatures that are coming to steal our women, but some of them were not quite so, you know, dramatic. So I think that the people might have been prepared. I think the block, the roadblock, came from the academic and scientific community, personally. And I, I think, actually, that's the real roadblock to this day. Well, I think the government also is a roadblock because the government assumes the citizens are very stupid. And guess what? We think the people in the government are very stupid, so it works both ways. But this idea of gradual disclosure, I, I, I would give it some possible credit. Um, there's a, a number of, depends on the day of the week. There are some days I look at that and I just think I'm not really seeing a lot of an effort for a gradual disclosure, or at least I'm not seeing what I would consider good evidence. But maybe, you know, there are, uh, the, the whole Steven Spielberg connection is very intriguing to me. There is a story, of course, that uh, during the screening of the movie E.T. By, by Spielberg, this is at the Reagan White House, I think it was in 1983, June of 83. We do know Spielberg was there and we, that he did air E.T. for Reagan and about, I think, 60 people from the White House were there. Now, according to a story, and the story went, came from Jamie Chanderay, who, of course, is of MJ-12 connection, but Chanderay was a filmmaker who actually did know Steven Spielberg. That much we know. Chanderay said, when he was working in Japan, he met with Spielberg and they talked. And according to this, Spielberg said to him the following story, that after they aired the movie E.T., Reagan, talking privately with Spielberg, and there's a small group of people, you know how like a large thing like this could be, there's people milling about talking. Sure. Reagan said to Spielberg, there probably aren't six people in this room who realize how true, how close to the truth your movie was. Okay. So now... That's what Spielberg allegedly said to Chanderay, and Chanderay repeated it a couple of years later. But it, right, I heard this before, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you, you know, think about a guy like Spielberg, who's really, he's never really talked a lot about the UFO topic explicitly. He's made very few statements on it. But I have wondered, I really admit, I have wondered if Spielberg has had, you know, a mandate to promote this issue. I know he's personally interested in it, but... Maybe he's had some help along the way. We know that uh, the Robertson panel back in the 1950s, CIA-sponsored panel, talked about the need to co-opt Disney in, uh, in terms of its UFO propaganda. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't strike me as outrageous that the government would co-opt various movie makers to promote one theme or another having to do with extraterrestrials. My wife, Karen, is personally interested in looking at uh, the UFO issue as it pertains to children's television programming. And this is a rather interesting side issue in a way. Um, our kids are too old now for this, but I remember when they were very little. Do you, you know the show Teletubbies? You've heard of this, right? Oh, yeah, Teletubbies, okay. sure. Right. They're, they're kind of freaky. And the thing about them is, and there's a, a successor show that's even more weird called Booba, which is just completely whack. But with the Teletubbies, these are little, they're like space creatures, really. They have an underground base. There's a fly, there's like this 
kind of a totalitarian little loudspeaker that tells them what to do all the time. Uh, and they just happily go out and do it. And then there's like a little flying saucer that periodically would come down and release this little dancing bear. <laughs> really, really surreal stuff, but with very obvious alien imagery just throughout all of it. I read an interview with the creator of Teletubbies, and she made absolutely no indication that this had anything to do with extraterrestrial. And I'm thinking, where... How can you, you know, you're going through this entire interview and you're not even making the obvious statement that this is clearly, these are space creatures. So, I mean, I'm curious, is, is there a mandate there? And then for the, for the, the Booba show, good grief, it's all, all flying saucer aliens interacting with children, making them laugh. Is this an agenda to uh, inculcate young people with the idea that these strange extraterrestrials are our friends? Warm and fuzzy ETs. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to be warm and fuzzy. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Richard Dolan on the PowerCast. He's author of UFOs in the National Security State. Volume 1 came out a few years ago. Volume 2 just about done, and there'll be a Volume 3. And we're in the final segment of our visit. So, Question. Me, question. I have a question. You, well, okay. Do you have question your... from the peanut I, gallery. I have, to, I have to draw a number here. Number 37. Are you number 37? <laughs> That's me. Okay. Go ahead, please. All righty. Thank you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Sorry, Jeremy. So, Rich, here's a, here's a, I have two questions for you. Question A, even though, this is David. Okay, David, great, sorry. Number 37. Yeah. All right. We missed your presentation Friday, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier in the show. But uh, it came to my attention that in this presentation, you addressed, to some degree, the abduction situation. Yes, I did. Having missed your presentation, could you... Give us the condensed version of what you presented. Yeah, gladly. As I'm doing it, I'm, I'm here at my laptop, and um, I'm pulling up the, the PowerPoint to remind <laughs> myself of what I did. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I notice in, in these ex-conference presentations, in fact, in most presentations at any UFO-type conference, is that no one really talks about abductions. It's very, it's a lot of fun to talk about how wonderful the extraterrestrials are and how, you know, we need to grow up as a society to be ready to establish a, a, a diplomacy with them and so on. But, you know, well, let's, let's get down to earth, so to speak, and ask ourselves, well, 
if we disclose that ET are here and presumably living among us in some way, what does it mean for us then that some of them appear to be taking us out of our bedrooms? And we need to ask, why are they abducting us? Okay, look, if the president or if a president were to say, you know, UFOs apparently are real and they appear to be extraterrestrial, so, well, that's fine, but you can't just stop there, obviously, because there's a many, many, many follow-up issues, including this whole abduction question. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, all of these people who claim that they've been taken by large-eyed aliens, well, maybe they sound a little more credible now. I think that they would. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are these other beings taking us? The more that I personally look into this, the more that I am convinced that there's a large number of people who are living, unbeknownst to themselves, a secret life. I mean, it's an amazing thing to say, and I I wasn't anywhere close to this position when I started researching this topic. But there's too many instances that have come to my attention where where people's memories have basically been manipulated or wiped after they've had an experience. Many cases where people in the abduction experience seem to have a conscious recollection of of that whole life, which they then forget when, uh, when that experience is over. And I think it's entirely possible that that is so. Uh, the presentation by, uh, by C.B. Scott Jones, I don't know if you, David, uh, listened to that presentation, but that was an amazing presentation. Scott Jones is 80 years old now and talked about, you know, he was a, a senior aide to Senator Claiborne Pell for years. Scott Jones has experience and experience and experience on the Hill. And he, has, he said that he was confronted with information by an individual who said to him that he, Jones, had been seen by this person aboard a mothership many times. Hmm. And, and, and Jones was, he was very persuaded, I think, that that had been the case. And I have spoken with other people about this. I think that it's probably going on. So in other words, the whole issue of abductions, it's not just that they're taking us, that they're taking parts of our DNA and doing things with it. That's important also. But it it could be much more profound than this in that it involves a true manipulation of our minds and of our memories. If that is so, that is an exopolitical question of the first order. But isn't it also possibility here that some of those cases are government experiments? And this is the other controversial thing I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, the the military abduction phenomenon. And I, I think that there... I sure. mean, personally, I think that there are military abductions. I believe the number of the people who claim that they've had... But, but is it credible that military abductions can explain the majority of these cases? I just think the answer is no. Well, yeah, no, I don't We're think so. We're talking so much. I mean, and it is... There are global cases of abduction. We're not aware of a lot of the other ones because I just think that there's not enough of an infrastructure in place to get those reports. But it appears that this is global. And certainly even if it's only national, the the apparent number of these cases is so enormous. I can't see this being a military operation, except in, you know, very, very restricted amounts as maybe like a counterintelligence thing, you know. So if you know that someone's been abducted, you want to find out what these aliens are like, you might take them yourself and interrogate them, which is what a lot of the MILAB experience seems to be. So basically they're having a second abduction encounter, but the second abduction encounter is one that's manufactured. Right, that's exactly. And uh, Well, that also goes back to another theory about things that are manufactured is, and 
this is one that David and I have been discussing lately. The early UFO contact cases or some UFO contact cases where people claim to have met up with extraterrestrials. You wonder if some of these people had genuine encounters at one time or another. It could be UFOs. It could be a paranormal thing. could be a religious experience, whatever. And they had two situations. Number one, of course, when they revealed what happened, they had their 15 minutes of fame and they wanted 30. So they go back and they make up a few more experiences. Or their followers encourage them to do it, or their followers make them up themselves and then convert these people, ordinary people who had extraordinary encounters into their own prophets as statists. I think that's that's very natural. I I, I actually believe that happened. And I think some of those contactee cases, my initial instinct was to dismiss them all. I I don't dismiss them all. I think some are probably valid. What I believe happened is that, um, I mean, I've I've had a theory now for several years. I really think it's probably true, which is that these extraterrestrials have created their own human worker population. They basically bred their own humans. Uh, and they happen to work for them. I would, if I were an extraterrestrial here, I would have probably my nice underground base, right? And I would, I would have abducted a number of humans and bred them, and just have them live with me. Well, it also uh, goes to follow that maybe we are all people or creatures who have been bred by them. Oh well, it's entirely possible. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, I think it's quite possible. But in terms of human beings who are identified as extraterrestrial by by contactees, it could very well be that they are, they are human. For the most part, they might have been genetically enhanced, and they might have various implants in them as well to make them more amenable to the ET interests. But these could be human beings. There are certainly many cases of totally human-looking people piloting UFO craft back in the 40s and 50s. That, That could be the case. So how difficult is it to credit this? If, after all, if I were an alien and I didn't look like a human being at all, I might not want to cause mass panic in this population knowing that if they saw me as I am they would be you know completely unable to deal with me so you'd have you'd have human workers for you doing your job I don't see that as an outrageous possibility and I think that maybe some of these early contact cases maybe that's what happened maybe that's it and then of course you get the whole messiah complex developing around some of these contactees that certainly can be the case where you know, you have to kind of keep it going, right? And you can even right. credibility that way. Yeah. I think it's very, very normal for humans. Well, that's more about mental illness than anything paranormal. Well, uh, not even mental illness. Just, uh, you know, you get kind of a messiah complex. I think that can happen to people. Yeah, well, I, I, I kind of, uh, in, the gradi- in the gradation of uh, normal behavior to extreme behavior, that, that kind of goes over into the deep, dark red. Um, can be a very seductive thing. Oh, yeah. I never pretend that I have a lot of experience with it, but I, have, I mean, people know who I am, and I can go to a conference and uh, pretend that I'm a celebrity for like a weekend. <laughs> but I, I can see a little bit how if you have a lot of fame, that that's, boy, you know, you could have that and really want more and more and oh, more. Oh, it's quite the aphrodisiac, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, no question yeah. about that. Ask George Clooney. He'll tell you all about it. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> here's the question, uh, the other question I wanted to ask you, uh, Rich. And it's going to put you on the spot a little bit, only a little bit. So I'd be right. curious to see how you respond to this. What's the one thing that you find curious about this whole situation that potentially you have 
hesitated or even declined to document in your books. So now I'm asking you for the deep personal stuff about this because something that's becoming clear to me at least is that there is a component of all of this that is so highly subjective that it indicates perhaps a layer of complexity to UFOs and this whole phenomenon that is not easily accessible. So in so is your is there information that I'm getting that I'm I'm not really choosing to write about? N- not so much as well, how about more of is there something you believe is possible based perhaps on information that you're getting that you're declining to write about? Yeah, okay, I think there's a few things. There, well, there's some very, very fringy, interesting stories that I think there may or may not be something to it that I, I couldn't write about other than maybe to describe as a phenomenon. For example, the whole Serpo story. I think, Gene, you were asking what I thought about Serpo. Yeah. You know, that that's one of these things. Um, I'm intrigued, truthfully, by some of the Serpo story. And then there's other aspects of it that I just I feel like I have nothing to go on here. Uh, I don't really know if that's that's the kind of question that you're asking, though. I, I mm. think it isn't. No. Um, it's it not. Isn't. Right. No. I think I think I mean what I'm trying to do is struggle with this topic and and in as open a way as I'm able to to, to deal with these issues as, as they come up to me. So, for example. I'm a lot more willing to speculate openly about this than I was uh, a few years ago. And mm-hmm. one of the speculations that I have is of a, um, well, all right, let's just put it out there, kind of a David Icke sort of scenario. Not not that the aliens are shape-shifting reptilians who look like humans. I'm really not thinking that that's necessarily the case, but right, I would right. say... When I look at an analysis, a political analysis by people like Icke, I, I will tell you, I have no problem saying this uh, on air, that I think his political analysis is often very much dead on. That is, that there is a hierarchy, there is an elite. You want to call it the Illuminati? All right, maybe that's as good a word as any. You know, whereas in earlier years, I was really not prepared to accept that there is a kind of overarching control group. I was more inclined to think you've got a lot of different conspiracies running around, and this is one of them. Um... I'm not so sure I believe that anymore, and I think it's it's at least something that I entertain, that there is a very, very top-level group of individuals with preponderant uh, control over the nodes of power in our society and over the wealth, that, that they're basically running the show to the extent that they want to, and that these individuals may very well have in on the uh, UFO secret. Is that possible? I entertain this idea frequently. Now, it doesn't appear in my public writings right. at all, really. Right. Uh, because I don't, I don't know how to, how does one document such a thing. It's, it's difficult. But on the other hand, when, when you look at the structure of wealth and power, and then when you try to research things like the Rothschild family or the Rockefeller family, you start running into serious obstacles. Like I know because I have tried, at least at an entry level, to try to get a handle on these very powerful families, and it's very difficult to do. Or the Bilderberger group. We know that there's a group that, uh, I don't know if they call themselves the Bilderbergers, they probably do at this point, but there is such a group. The meetings occur. There is a 
definite media blackout of those meetings when they happen. We know this. So who are these people? What are they? I mean, they're the richest, powerful, most powerful people in the world. They meet on a regular basis, right? And there's no coverage. So yes, I could become very suspicious of that. So that is probably uh, a very key area where, you know, I, I find this interesting, possibly disturbing, uh, possibly very, very uh, suggestive. And yet, I haven't, I haven't yet dug in there in a public way to kind of wrestle with this. But mm. mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe the day will come when I do. Yeah, uh, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. I'm, I, I seem to be stumbling towards that direction. Well, we're stumbling towards a conclusion for the show, so before you disappear into the wilderness and the Bilderbergers attack you and right, they okay. take control of you and grab you by the neck or whatever Bilderbergers do, whatever their point well, of view is, whatever they're... they buy you off. <laughs> All right. That's what they might do. Okay, before they buy you off. Okay, public appearance, is anything coming up in the next few months that we can mention? Yeah, actually, uh, quite a few. Um, I'm doing a lot of travel this year. And um, I'm going to um, the McMinnville, Oregon Festival. Hmm. What, what a neat thing this seems like. And that's going to be uh, the weekend of, gosh, I could probably tell you right away, looking for my, my own website. I, I forget half the things I'm doing. I think it's the, the weekend of around May 15th or 16th. This is all on my website, which is keyholepublishing.com. I've got a, a bunch of uh, appearances scheduled. But I'm going to McMinnville, Oregon. And then I'm doing two talks in Los Angeles on, I think, May 20th and May 21st. One of them is for L.A. MUFON. Uh, this is, again, on my website at keyholepublishing.com. And I'm also speaking in uh, there's a New York City conference, which has just been organized. It's called Culture of Contact. In fact, John ah, is uh, that's very right. much involved in getting that going. That's that would right. be with uh, people like Zechariah Sitchin, I think. Uh, and I think I heard Whitley Strieber's name uh, connected with that, too. Uh, that's early uh, September, I think September 9th or 10th or sometime around then. Um, then. Actually, I have your site up here, so it's Culture of Contact, oh. New York, New York, September 18th to 21st, oh, 2008. Yeah. And then you have the Crash Retrieval Conference in yeah, Las Vegas yeah. in November. Right, yeah. This, uh, it, it's a lot. I, I like doing the conferences. The only, the only complaint that I have, I, first of all, I, com- I do nothing but complain in the week or two before every conference. Because <laughs> I have to prepare, i got to get the PowerPoint together, and I don't want to just throw out the same presentation that I've done you know, the, the previous time. So I always put effort into it, and it just, I love doing it. Um, it takes a little bit out of me each time, and it, it slows me down in the book. So each year, I, I always uh, say to, to uh, Karen, no more conferences, <laughs> or at least I'm going to really cut them down. And of course, I always break that rule because I seem to have an inability to say no when someone asks me to speak. So that's why you're here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know you asked me the other day, and I, and I did say no, didn't I? Actually, you said you were busy one day, but I said I pressed the issue. I said, "How about this day?" And you said, "Okay." I'll relent. I, I totally caved. <laughs> you see, we know your secrets. But, but, but admit it, Rich, you like coming to the Paracast. Admit it. Oh, guys, I enjoy this show. I enjoy talking with both of you. <laughs> uh, it's always, I don't know how the other shows are, but here we have a very kind of nice, very serious discussion about these issues. I enjoy talking about it with both of you very much. And we enjoy yeah. having you, Richard Absolutely. Dolan. Author of UFOs in the National Security State. Of course, his site is Keyhole Publishing. 
Facebook.com, and we'll have a link at thepowercast.com. He has Volume 2 coming out shortly. He will have updates at his site as to when you can start placing orders and everything. Richard Dolan, thank you so much for joining us on short notice because I begged you on my knees <laughs> this week on The Powercast. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rich. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.